We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Sharice Trump. She's the executive director of Speech First and also the host of the Well Said podcast. Sharice, welcome and tell us where people can find your podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Emily. Um, yeah, so the podcast is Well Said by Speech First, and you can find it on pretty much wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. <laughs> so it's uh, it's pretty easy to find. Fantastic. Well, Sharice was telling me before we went on air just about her, her various jet-setting um, misadventures um, with battling academia. And I wanted to start off by one of the most interesting ones, or with one of the most interesting ones, and, and that's been your uh, litigation in the case of the University of Houston. And for folks, just to give them some background, start off by telling us a little bit about Speech First, how you got involved in it, and what you're doing when it comes to the University of Houston. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Speech First is a nonprofit membership organization, and we litigate on behalf of our student members against universities that violate the free speech rights of those students. And so the University of Houston case is really interesting. Oh, actually, I'll start off with how I got involved with Speech First, um, because it's kind of an interesting story. So I was actually working in national security and defense policy and, and kind of working on the operational side of all of that. And that's what my background's in. But I realized that when you're thinking about national security and what's good for the country and what the country needs at the time in order to feel secure, um, I started looking around and seeing some of this like cultural, obviously these cultural battles going on. And I felt like the priority at this point was no longer kind of in the defense realm. It started to become very clear to me that actually it was a national security risk with how much our culture has broken down and our enemies are going to take full advantage of that. And they already have. So that's, that's kind of like how I started getting involved with domestic policy issues. And then um, speech first um, came along as an opportunity for me to get involved with higher education, which obviously we look around on universities, you see uh, all sorts of issues in addition to free speech with the culture breakdown. It all kind of starts there in my opinion. Um, that's fascinating, actually. And let me, I, I want to yeah. actually pull out one of the threads there. Sure. You said, coming from the national security world, you recognize that there was a real national security threat to the erosion of quality. And um, I'm sure you can get into the erosion of everything, standards mm-hmm. in, in academia. I was just talking to some folks about how China subsidizes our higher education system oh. by paying full tuition and um, essentially gets to, pull a lot of uh, weight um, in our education system as well. So this is something I think people don't understand the extent of or maybe the specifics of uh, because the media doesn't really talk about it and our political class doesn't really talk about it. Can you explain a little bit about what it was that made you think this is such an immediate threat that I, I should go into this space because this is a space where our national security is on the line? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think China was a big part of it. Um, It became pretty clear looking around, not only was the Confucius Institute, I think kind of like a big wake up to, to a lot of people in the policy world that, wow, they're actually targeting our universities and we kind of let it happen for this entire time and no one really said anything. Um, But then, and it was the other issue was the fact that you had students, you had thousands upon thousands of students coming over from China and all of their tuitions are paid for by the Chinese government. So this is something to also keep in mind with how many, how many, how much tuition money is coming in from the Chinese government. In addition to that, you also have the research grants and all of the other funding that China gives to the universities. I always joke, you know, with people that 
you know, if you if you shut down the Chinese funding at universities today, how many schools would go out of business? How many of them would collapse because they no longer could take money from China? And that's something that became, you know, that kind of really crossed those roads for me of national security and domestic policy. And as you start to dig more into it, you start to find scenarios where it's so much in the interest of China that our culture breaks down and that we disregard everything that, you know, was at the basis of our founding and our principles. And if that happens, then it totally weakens us and makes us susceptible to manipulation, um, whether it be through media, through universities, through through um, like Hollywood. I mean, we look at Disney. I, I could go on for days about this, but it became very, very aware or I became very aware of all of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to return to it. I didn't realize that was uh, your impetus for joining the the fray in, in academia. And speaking of which, we'll get back to, to Houston right now. You yep. just, I believe you did, like literally just sued yeah. the University of Houston. Uh, tell us why and tell us about the case. Yeah, absolutely. We filed the complaint last week and filed for a preliminary injunction two days ago. Um, so typically our cases focus on like bias response teams and discriminatory harassment policies and other speech codes, anything that essentially will chill student speech on campus that will make it to where students are censoring themselves. They don't feel like they can speak up and because they're afraid of disciplinary action being taken by the university. And so we, our members at University of Houston made us aware of some policies under their harassment policy um, that that made it very difficult to assume, made it very difficult for students to interpret like what harassment was actually going to be defined up. You could, you could only assume that pretty much anything you said because of how broad and subjective the terminology used to describe harassment in the policy, you could actually be accused of, of harassment. And so the, sorry. Dog. Is your um, dog? <laughs> I love it. We always have dogs interrupting yes, Federalist Radio. It's, it's only a good thing. <laughs> he knows it's almost dinner time, so he's bugging me. Um, yeah, so basically the University of Houston has a couple of different examples uh, listed in their harassment policy that says um, anything from negative stereotyping, denigrating jokes, um, which are types of protected speech at the end of the day that this this is uh, actually considered harassment under their policies, and that's directly quoted from their policy. Another direct quote from their policy says that students could be punished for minor verbal and nonverbal slights, snubs, annoyances, insults, or isolated incidents, including but not limited to microaggressions. Hmm. So I think it's very clear when you read that list that obviously anything you say that can be interpreted by anyone could be con- you could be considered harassment. So obviously students are going to start stop or going to stop saying what they think and stop expressing their opinions, especially about um, specific social political issues that are going on because they could possibly offend someone and get reported to um, the harassment office. Do you find that schools have been more um, easily in- intimidated by some of these suits into either settling or, or making change in recent years? It seems like uh, after the University of Chicago um, statement that some folks might remember, which is a pretty firm embrace of free speech from leftist academics, um, centrist academics, some conservative academics, it caught a little bit of uh, traction in academia. And I wouldn't say that was the turning point, but it certainly represents uh, the reality that a lot of, you know, sort of old boomer leftist academics were upset with what was happening on their campuses. And it it took, you know, maybe some uh, courage or boldness on their part to just say, what the heck are we doing? We can't be doing this stuff. So I'm curious if that's your experience. um, And this is not meant to be a leading question you you may say absolutely not these schools are as bad as they ever have been but it does seem to be from the outside um at least that there has been some momentum yeah it's interesting because 
you know, I'm the type of person that wants to give credit where credit is due. And there are professors out there um, who are very much, you know, pro free speech and do try to make sure, regardless of where they stand on their political positions, try to make sure that speech is protected on the campus. Um, but even that, that Chicago statement that you mentioned, a number of universities have signed on to it. Mm-hmm. In fact, so many universities have signed on it. I started looking into the list of universities and actually looking at their policies and realized that at the end of the day, they can sign this document, but it doesn't change the policies on their campus. Right. Many, many universities will have policies that say we support free speech, we support open debate and discussion, and we want students to feel like they can freely express themselves on our campus. And then the next policy right after that <laughs> will say, um, no, you, you can't actually express yourself. In fact, if you say anything that's considered bias or if you say anything that's considered un, um, un, inappropriate or makes people uncomfortable, then all of a sudden you can be reported to whether it be the Title IX office or the bias response team, and you can meet actual disciplinary action, or you'll have to go to mandated diversity training. You know, you've seen a lot of this on campuses. So a lot of them say it just to keep people happy. They sign these documents because they know it'll get some donors to give them more money, and then they go back and do whatever it is that they want. Yeah, so that's interesting. They would fundraise off of uh, being in favor of free speech. And you, so you have an alumni donor campaign that you guys are running at Speech First, which is fascinating to me because I worked on these issues at Young America's Foundation. It was my first job out of college. And one of the things uh, people really always underestimated was how important reaching alumni with some of these insane stories is to restoring sanity um, because alumni are the ones that are, are giving the money and they're the ones that in many cases live in the community. So if they see something in the local paper, as opposed to, you know, um, the Federalist, for example, they are going to actually, you know, more of them are going to read it because they're they're in the community um, and it's targeted to them and it's word of mouth. And then suddenly yeah. the school will just be deluged with calls from angry um, alumni. That does seem to be one of the most effective routes to to changing schools. Right. Especially with private universities. So who we can sue, um, like where there's legal recourse, that's primarily focused on public universities because because there's so much more beholden to the constitution than private universities are. So in our kind of our discovery of how we could possibly put pressure on private universities that are violating students' free speech rights, we initially did petitions, which actually gained a lot of traction, just getting the public aware of what was going on on the campuses. But the universities will see the petition letter and they'll just kind of file it away. They don't really change anything. So we're like, how can we actually put real life pressure on the, on these on these universities? Um, I'm sorry thinking about, obviously, alumni donors for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, and it, it made, it started to make a lot more sense in that, you know, the, they don't really know a lot of the times hmm. what's going on on the campuses, especially these isolated incidents, or especially like these policies, these bias response teams, these harassment policies that we find, we find them because our students who are living on the campuses or who were there all the time, um, eventually start to realize there's something wrong and they start to look into it and do some digging. They're right. pretty hidden. They're not something that the universities really advertise a lot. It's not going to be on the front of the student code of conduct handbook. And I would like to say, how many donors actually read the student code of conduct? Right? <laughs> who, whoever reads the student code? Yeah. It's just for lawyers. <laughs> Exactly. Students don't even read these things. Um, yeah. So it's 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 really important to, to recognize that like most donors have no idea what's going on on, on the campuses um, or they have very, very limited or they give because they like the sports team. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. 
So we started to do this, what we call the alumni donor campaign, where we just reach out to to major donors of universities and just say, hey, did you know this was happening? Um, you know, listen, check out our articles, check out what's going on. And we specifically show the stories of the university to the donor that gives to that school. So the goal is to kind of get them more involved and more interested in what's going on on the campuses. Yeah, it is amazing how much of an avenue they are to change because schools freak out when they just start getting calls from donors. And in case it's because they're community stakeholders too. And in so many cases, uh, they're still living in the community and interacting with people. I want to pick up on something you just said, and, and it relates to it probably still, I think. Um, people don't know what's happening on college campuses because <laughs> so much of this is buried in the bureaucracy. And it's it's fascinating because I remember when I was at the Washington Examiner, uh, when James Damore was let go, or maybe he resigned, I forget which, from Google, um, mm. because he circulated a sort of uh, heterodox PowerPoint about biology and biological essentialism, the differences between men and women um, that may have been a little bit wrong in some places and, and really right in some places, um, either way offended his coworkers at, at Google. So he was out the door. And I remember at the time I helped write our editorial on it. And uh, I was like, wow, there used to be so many people who would say, you just wait until those kids hit the real world. They are going to you know, be in for a, a, tough, a tough time. And instead, they went into the real world and shaped the real world. And oh, so yeah. after Demore, I remember writing, like the whole world is a college campus now. Everything is a college campus now. And it seemed like in 2020, finally, we were having that conversation and, you know, the, the entire eruption of cancel culture and wokeness, it hit the media and they were ready to talk about it, even though they were facilitating a terrible conversation about it. People started waking up to it. It's amazing to me that you you said people don't know what's happening at universities still because this has become a frontline issue. But right. it sounds like as somebody who works on these issues right now, it's actually really difficult to know what's happening on college campuses because so much of it seems like anodyne, bureaucratic uh, language or structure um, or detritus, and you know you just don't you don't know about it at all until a kid hits a snag. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff you hear are just these one-off incidents. Oftentimes, when you hear what's going on on the campuses, you'll hear about a major speaker who was there um, who got canceled. Like I've seen like five articles about how Pence wasn't canceled at Stanford. <laughs> right. Like this is just that's that's what everyone focuses on. It's always the big names and the things that are like kind of sexy to talk about that folks are going to put in the media, um, and that's what they're going to hear about. But yeah, a lot of these policies, especially the ones that we focus on at Speech First, like I said, they're very hidden. They're very buried, and it's also like. The, they're not really easy to understand. And this yes, is yes. struggle with them. Yeah. And then bias response teams, like who knows what a bias response team is when it's phrased that way. It's not self-descriptive. No one knows what it is or what it's for. They just know that like, it sounds like it's helping prevent bad things. You know, that's pretty much like the general consensus of when you see one of these policies. But then if you look at it close enough and you actually see, Oh, it's anonymous reporting system where students can report bias. Who defines bias? You know, it's who knows? <laughs> like that's well, crazy people. Crazy people yeah. define bias. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so it's it requires a lot of research, a lot of digging. Um, not everyone's going to do that with every university. Um, they're just going to do it to the universities they are specifically focused on, whether it's because their students or their grandkids go there, or if it's because they give them a million dollars every year. Um, and a lot of the times, it's not really. 
it's, it's, well, you're not going to still, you're not going to find the policies unless you Google the university's name and harassment policy and bias response <laughs> in the exact same search bar. That's the only way you're going to find these. So it's really, it's really important that people do a lot more research. And I always tell students this too. One, don't have, you know, don't be afraid to say no to an Ivy League because they are some of the worst offenders of <laughs> all of your rights. It's like, if you want to live four years in misery, not because you're being worked hard, but because all of your rights are being violated, then go ahead and go to like Harvard or Yale or something. And everybody hates you when there's a bias response team that is basically like yeah. monitoring you in this, like you're in a panopticon. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be reported. Yeah. yeah. And I say, have the courage to say no to some of these more prestigious colleges, universities, but also read the student handbook and I always say this to students, I'm like, look, you're adults now. You are autonomous. Do not let the universities take the role of your parents and make you think that they control your environment it, because that is what universities rely on. They rely on you being subservient to them by, by basically convincing you that they control your entire operating environment and that you can't, every rule has to be will be enforced and every rule applies directly to you. What a lot of universities hope is that we're actually, we're doing a report right now actually on um, what universities tell students in their freshman orientations um, because, (laughs) hey, do they actually teach students about free speech and freshman orientation? So far, no, they don't. From what we found, they absolutely don't even mention it because they don't want students to know their rights because that just gives them another avenue to challenge their power and um, and to start thinking for themselves. So I tell students, you look, you're autonomous. You have to know your rights at some point. Why not now? You know, you're adults at this point. You should know what the laws are in this country. Um, Especially when you're paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to, per, to, to, to an institution. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I hear students say, wait a second, they're not allowed to say that. That's hate speech. That's illegal. And I said, no, it's actually not. Or I'll say it to them, <laughs> I'll say it to them un- under the Constitution. I'll, I'll usually go through kind of like our First Amendment and compare it to the free speech, whatever terminology that's being used in the constitutions of whether it be like France, Germany, or the UK, or Canada. <laughs> All of them have exceptions written into their free speech. They'll say, oh, man is by natural law or whatever has like the right to free speech. And except for if it offends someone or if it's bigoted or if it's whatever, you know, except like, for well, there, you actually can't yell fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, technically you can't hear really. But <laughs> that one's up for interpretation still. But at the same time, regardless of everything else, in this country, our constitution specifies Congress shall make no law infringing the right of free speech. And so, you know, the, it leaves it up to the courts to interpret that and, and to kind of specify, but it's not written in the constitution. And, you know, we talked about all the, all the students coming over from China. I mean, what about all the other students coming from around the world? How many international students do all of these universities have? How well versed are they in the constitution? Not mm-hmm. to mention our own students. We already know that civics is compl- very undertaught in K through 12 and that most students come out not really knowing the constitution or the founding principles at all, um, let alone um, other students come from other countries, whether they be countries that are run by dictators or communist parties or even countries from the West. They still aren't going to really fully understand what free speech in America looks like unless the university introduces them to the idea their freshman year. So as somebody who's sort of intimately familiar with the bureaucracy of um, our university system, this is a huge question, but uh, and, and by all means, take your time. I'm curious what you what you would say, but what's the sort of simple outline of a plan that would uh, restore or, or I guess fix the, the system of higher learning? And I, I also ask that with, I'm curious of your experience with particularly the Title IX bureaucracy, which is something, by the way, that the education department and 
um, our federal government could deal with um, and, and does seem to be deeply insidious and a huge part of this problem. Um, but what is the, the general outline as you see it uh, having, having dealt with so many of these layers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you definitely opened up a lot there. So uh, <laughs> let, me, let me break down. Yeah. So for universities, I often hear a lot of my friends, especially conservatives in DC, talking about how the university is a lost cause and how it's something that, you know, we can't save it. They're too far gone. Um, they're, they're never going to get to the point where they respect free speech or anything like that again. Um, my response to that is like, maybe I don't know, like, I can't tell the future, but in the meantime, you know, everyone who's going to be in a leadership position um, in the next decade or so is still going to process, be processed through our university system. Anyone yes. going into STEM or medical fields, anyone who's educating your students in K through 12, um, anyone who's running companies or going to be working for big tech firms, like all of those people still have to go through the university system. People in the intelligence agencies and the government representing us abroad. So this is something that we really have to keep in mind when we're like, is the university system lost cause let's not talk about it anymore no this is serious this is a really big deal and it's you know again we are they're influencing every aspect of our lives in one way or another um so in answering that, I would say first thing is like we're obviously not going to give up on the university system anytime soon, at least for the for the legal recourse of trying to get the bureaucracy and then the administrative policies in line um, with the constitution but I will say that uh, on, on your question regarding uh, Title IX and, and what's going on at the federal level, you know, t the, in 2020, um, Trump introduced the rule, the Davis standard. Um, it's called the, the 2020 rule. I think you can look it up. And it's like the Davis standard is a Supreme Court precedent that actually lays out some pretty clear language for how to talk about harassment, when harassment, um, uh, when language being defined as harassment by being used uh, in a severe and pervasive manner can actually cross the line into harassing conduct, right? So this is kind of, it actually lays out a lot of really good language for it. And that standard exists today. Universities have just chosen not to put it in their policies on their campuses. It, it's actually kind of amazing to me when you look at these policies and you're like, how did your lawyers sign off on this? Because <laughs> don't you guys have general counsel at the university? How did they, uh, how did they approve of you passing something that's so obviously against the law? Um, my guess, my guess was always that the lawyers actually didn't sign off on it and that the school probably just wrote it in the handbook without passing it by anyone or no one really double checked it. Um, but even in the University of Houston case, for example, we had uh, there were some students that told us in a student government meeting that they had general counsel of the university come give them a brief on free speech because there were some questions about what actually constituted free speech. Um, and he actually told them verbatim, like we have the recording, it says he said that, uh, yeah, free speech isn't really uh, protected on our campus. And that in, even if you're if you're saying anything about any gender or race, you're probably uh, violating our harassment policy. <laughs> students, as a lawyer, and I'm just, my mind was blown, like my mind was blown <laughs> when I was watching this video because I was like, okay, well, maybe it's not that the lawyers aren't seeing it. Maybe they just are, and they're just like very poorly trained lawyers. So I don't know. Um, but, but on the time, stuff, actually, the language exists at the federal level right now. My biggest concern is the Biden administration saying that they are going to be changing Title IX this spring. Um, so we need to really keep a close eye on that. I know they're going to do some stuff with the transgender issues, yeah. but I'm also really afraid they're going to remove the Davis standard. Um, and that's going to open this whole can of worms of how universities can interpret harassment and how they can um, start to shut down speech. And I think it's important that everyone's going to be focused on the really shiny object of Title IX, which is obviously the transgender stuff and some of the other cultural issues um, regarding uh, LGBTQ rights on campus. 
but I'm going to be looking at the speech issue because that kind of slips right in there and no one really notices when, when universities try to use Title IX um, against free speech. So that's just something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Nobody really notices notices that at all. Um, and it's a, another reminder of how the vast administrative state um, does hinge on whoever is occupying the, the Oval Office. And then sometimes, even if it's a, a Republican president, you have so many entrenched bureaucrats that they will continue to pursue that uh, agenda, even while they're under different leadership. You started on the administrative state. You go all night for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, is there something people don't understand about this issue that, like you would want to clarify um, that people miss when they think about just in the public sort of general conception of like, oh, okay, our, our schools are all liberal. Um, and even a lot of, I mean, the whole left acknowledges that, of course, um, most right. of the whole left, I should say. Um, but is there something people get wrong? Is there something that the stereotype doesn't do justice to? Yeah, there's a couple things. One, I would say is, yes, the, the universities have always leaned left. This is something that almost since the beginning, they've kind of always attracted more liberal thinkers, more progressive thinkers. Um, and that's just what the environment of a university kind of lends itself to a little bit more, and that's who is attracted to it. However, over time, we really have to pay attention to how opposing viewpoints have been treated on university campuses. So there has, I mean, you've seen protests and stuff, but at the same time, it used to be that you could you could stand up and just even like 10 to 15 years ago, you could stand up and debate your professor in class, regardless of how many people agreed with you um, on any issue. And you could actually feel comfortable doing that and feel confident doing that. And the, and the professor would engage with you, which would show the rest of the students that by example, to respect your opinions as, the, as you're respecting his or hers. So that is something that I think is completely lost in the university system now. That doesn't exist. That, that, that confidence, that luxury of being able to just stand up and speak your mind whenever you want and not have to worry about not only being lambasted on social media, but also possibly, again, being reported to the administration for hurting someone's feelings. Um, so that's something that I think is lost. And uh, again, it comes down to a lot of folks will, will say, hey, it's just, you know, there's okay, so students don't get a chance to be racist or make racist comments or be hateful on campus, but isn't that what universities should be making the university's environment like safe for everyone and everyone should feel comfortable all the time? My response to that is, okay, so if someone is in your house and they make a racist comment or if someone's in a conversation with you, you have what is like the opt-out option, right? Like you can leave the conversation, you can debate that person and tell them you disagree with them, or you can just kick them out of your house. But when the government or the state comes in and is like, no, we're actually going to be the ones that kick people out of your house for comments that we don't like, or we're going to be the ones that break up the relationship with, between you and another person because you, you guys don't agree, or they said something offensive. That's a different role, right? So as an individual, you can leave a conversation, you can debate someone, you can get rid of them. But from, from the state's perspective, which is what the role the university plays, this is something that we, we absolutely need to be careful with because this is how, when you look at historically tyrannical governments and despotic governments, when they come in and they start to take over a country, this is kind of where they start. You know, they start off saying, we're only helping you. We're here to, you know, we're here to help you and to save you from feeling uncomfortable, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> from feeling poor and desolate. And we're going to like remove all of the threats in your life. Um, but they're the ones controlling the environment. Just keep that in mind. So. 
Well, I want to return to uh, the earlier conversation about how academia constitutes a national security threat, because, again, this is something people do not contextualize academia within. They really don't see our our schools as a national security threat. And we've talked about the China issue, um, and I'm sure there's much more you could say on that. Is there anything else other than the the, uh, influence of, I mean, literally the CCP on some campuses (laughs) who, who uh, control the Chinese Student Associations um, right. and control the the students, by the way, in so many yeah. cases. And and that's a, it's it's a it's a sad story for the students, um, even the students who are acting on agents, basically on behalf of the uh, the the Chinese government. They are in a country that has so much more freedom and and does have so much opportunity, and they're not really fully able to um, enjoy, appreciate, or um, accept it. Mm-hmm. What is, is again the similar question to the last one? Is there something people miss, or is there something you would say people do not understand the gravity of uh, the situation when it comes to academia and national security? I mean, I think you outlined it pretty well, or you summarized it pretty well. In that, with the China issue, I mean, there was an incident not too long ago, actually, at Purdue, Purdue University, uh, where there were Chinese students that were harassing and attacking other Chinese students who were being anti-China. Right. So it was, they were acting on behalf of their state to punish students who were being anti-China. I mean, a lot of these students are, aren't actively, like they're not spying knowingly for China. Um, they're right. not, you know, they, I think a lot of them are required by the government in order to get their tuition paid to probably send reports back or journal entries and take pictures of things. Um, but that's something that I think our government has been aware of um, for a while. I just think the general public needs to start grappling with this issue of how, like you said, how pervasive it is and how, how insidious it is, because it's, it, it is, it is hundreds of thousands. It's not just, you know, a few students who, here and there. Um, so on the China issue, it's really, really important that we recognize just how plugged into this country they are. I heard something the other day where they're now trying to start to influence state politicians. They're trying to influence state legislators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they've come to realize that a lot of the power in this country actually is at the states, <laughs> not the federal government. Um, it took them a while to probably understand that. They read the Federalist Papers and they were like, oh, that's how it works. It's it's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. That's exactly what happened. No. So um, so look, they're not they have China has the luxury to um, to really focus all of their efforts on one goal, common goal. We don't have that in the United States. We're kind of all over the place, right? We our elections are we're turning around leaders left and right constantly, um, and we have you know other issues that are kind of distracting us. And countries like China that are so hyper focused on one common goal, um, they actually take full advantage of our distractions, and they will they will they will try to get it, their fingers in wherever they can to make it worse than it needs to be. So. All of these like radical movements that you're seeing with Antifa, Black Lives Matter, defund the police. I'm sure they're just lapping it up. They love that stuff because that's going to be the, the the disintegration of our society. Um, I mean, I think it's just important the general public looks at this from an enemy's point of view. What would be in the advantage of someone who wants to knock the United States off of you know off of our our hill, off of our um, our pedestal, right, of being the number one superpower? What are some of the best ways to do it is to get us to infight, to turn against one another. Mm-hmm. The disintegration of our culture and of our society and everything that our country stands for is absolutely in the interest of our enemies. And so, you know, 
know, I think I think the administration, the last administration was correct in saying that China is a number one issue. And I think every aspect of our politics should be should keep that in mind. One issue I've always had an issue I've had a problem with since I've, you know, even the studying international relations and national security in college um, in undergrad and grad school is how separate these topics are kept from one another. When you study IR, never once did I have to take uh, an American history class. I did not, I only did it as like my electives. I took American history. I did not have to take one single philosophy or American history class or political philosophy class at all in order to get that degree. Um, and that's how it is in a lot of universities. Students can completely avoid the topics of, of domestic policy if they are only taking national security um, programs. Yeah, you, you said something so important, which is, um, it reminds me of the silly memes that uh, the the uh, like Hillary Clinton contingency was saying destroyed the uh, sanctity of the 2016 elections that uh, Russians had promoted, the Russian government had promoted, um, as far as we can tell, on Facebook that were about BLM and LGBT issues and were essentially goading Americans into fighting each other at uh, my alma mater, George Washington University, uh, at the start of the Olympics, actually. Um, there was a dissident, there were posters from a dissident uh, in, you know, anti-CCP artists um, that were uh, talking about the human rights violations that the CCP had committed. And the Chinese Student Association said they were racist. Um, and they intentionally deployed the social justice language to right. get the president of the school to cave and then reverse his decision. But it was it's it's very important it, they did this in Anchorage. They they did this explicitly in Anchorage to Blinken and to Jake Sullivan. Um, they're intentionally weaponizing the social justice language to divide oh, people. Yeah, and you know, time and time again, we see uh, under under the guise of diversity, equity, inclusion, do we we always see. Um, policies that directly violate students, free speech rights and other rights as well, like due process rights as well. Um, it's something that that is when you see a DEI. A, a, department on campus or an administrator on campus who with that title, just be warned. Like that is there specifically to crack down on the rights of students. And, you know, it, again, so much money is being poured into DEI efforts on campuses to the point where it's, they have to justify their existence somehow, right? Like they have to show, action. <laughs> they have to show results. So <laughs> as they, they're going to, this, you wonder who's leading the charge on bias response teams and, and these crazy harassment policies that include everything under the sun. It's, it's these DEI offices are really kind of behind this. And that, that movement behind DEI is kind of what's pushing universities in this direction. But yeah, another example of ones you've listed off is like Emerson, Emerson university. They, they, uh, I think a, a student group turning point student group, um, just post had like a sticker that they put around, which was said that China kind of, or is it China kind of sus S U S. Oh sus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, they tried, they disbanded the, the chapter. They removed their club status. And so this isn't the first time we've seen viewpoint discrimination with club status being abused. Uh, that's, that's pretty common, but usually it's the students doing it to other students, not necessarily the, the administrators being so blatant about it. Hmm. And one final question, Therese, is, is whether you have found that when you start filing these lawsuits in the the climate that I, I think has at least gotten, maybe it's just marginally uh, more friendly to free speech, do, do you sense that schools are more willing to settle or, or make changes or are they still, because there are obviously still a lot of ideological warriors on these campuses, right. the people who created the policies and are now sort of bitterly defending them because it's their work and, right. and their entire worldview wrapped up into them. Um, what is the climate like as you are battling these uh, lawsuits in particular? 
Yeah, oftentimes the universities will wait until we get up to the circuit level and they'll, they'll want to see what the circuit ruling is. Um, and in Fifth and Sixth Circuit, they've actually ruled in our favor um, on discriminatory harassment and bias response teams. And the school settled after after that. Um, and that was against the University of Michigan, the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Seventh Circuit, there was an issue where they they did rule against us, but the school settled anyway. My guess is to obviously the schools are not they do not like to be in the media with negative media. <laughs> right. like, well, That's how the alumni find out. Exactly, exactly. It's how the alumni find out. So uh, their their goal is to settle usually once they get to that point. And when we say settle, that means that they are agreeing to change the language of their policy so that it is constitutionally sound. And at the end of the day, that's all we're asking for. We're literally just asking that universities stop making unconstitutional policies. It's really basic stuff, but like something that you wouldn't think you would have to take to court um, when it's so obviously against free speech. It's just that's that's it's not complicated, though. That is really all that we're asking universities to do. Um, And I think it it does always surprise me, actually, when the universities are willing to go all the way up to the circuit level for things like this, because that's like, wow, you're actually defending this policy. Houston, I I, again with Houston, but then University of Central Florida too. the policies, when you read them, you're like, I can't believe you're actually they're defending these. But, you know, it's they they're banking on the fact that they hopefully they get a really progressive judge. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, I think, their their strategy behind a lot of it. Sharice Trump, where can people find the website for Speech First? Yeah, absolutely. So speechfirst.org. Um, pretty easy to find. But, you know, go on to our membership page, sign up to become a member to get regular updates. Also, you can, you know, fill us in what's going on on your campus or your kids campus. Feel free to send us your story. There's a link for that on the website as well. And like I said, I'm a, also host the Well Said podcast uh, by Speech First, which is, you know, me interviewing uh, folks in the higher education field or students as well, sometimes just on issues that are going on on campuses. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Stay.